0: Sidebar Canada, a podcast for new lawyers and law students who want to keep their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in Canadian law. This is Episode 3, Uber v. Heller, Arbitration and Unconscionability in the Gig Economy. Hi, I'm your host, Tiffany Salampa, and today we're joined by not one, but two experts in arbitration, Ms. Tina Cicchetti and Mr. Brian Casey. After practicing for more than 15 years in the commercial litigation group at Faskin in Vancouver... Tina joined Vancouver Arbitration Chambers and now sits as Arbitrator in Domestic and International Commercial Disputes. She is also a Member Arbitrator at Arbitration Place in Toronto. Tina currently resides in Dallas, Texas, and sits as Arbitrator in Ad Hoc and Institutional Arbitrations. She is ranked by Chambers and Partners as one of the most in-demand arbitrators in Canada. Brian Casey is a full-time arbitrator practicing out of the Bay Street Chambers in Toronto. He holds an LLM in international business law and is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. He's also the author of Arbitration Law of Canada, Practice and Procedure, which is published by Juris and was referred to in the majority opinion of the case at hand. So without further ado, let's get into it. Thank you, Brian and Tina, for joining us. So great to have you. And thanks so much for for speaking with us about the case of uh, Uber Technology v. Heller. I think this is going to be really interesting for our listeners who are interested in arbitration or interested in what's happening kind of in the gig economy. Um, But before we jump into the facts of the case and the discussion of the case specifically, um, Tina, would you mind giving us a review of uh, Canadian arbitration law and how it's different from the U.S. or other jurisdictions that people might be familiar with?
1: Uh, Sure, Tiffany. We'll take this up to about 40,000 feet. Uh, Just to give the audience a a bit of a background uh, on on Canadian arbitration law because it occurred uh, to us in our discussion that people may not realize that the situation in Canada is somewhat different than the situation in the U.S., which has a federal regime uh, for arbitration that crosses state borders or that is international. So unlike the U.S. because of Canada and its unique federal system um, each Canadian province and territory and federal government have arbitration acts that govern uh, arbitration and to make things more complicated uh, most of those jurisdictions have different acts depending on whether the subject matter is international or non international. Um, typically referred to as domestic, but often wider than that um, in, in true scope. So, in general, um, the Canadian jurisdictions each have legislation that follows something called the UNCITRAL Model Law on International Commercial Arbitration, and the UNCITRAL Model Law was. Um, A a great step forward in creating a template that national laws, nationals, countries could use um, for their national legislation that would import um, the basic protections of arbitration that are, are found in the 1958 New York Convention on the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards, foreign arbitral awards. And so this act is meant to insulate and protect arbitration, that is international and commercial, from interference by national courts. And that international regime was one that started to develop after World War II, where international business needed a means of resolving its commercial disputes in a way that would not be interfered with politically, and that would be an efficient and enforceable regime. So that 1958 convention, New York Convention um, does two things. It requires state signatories to recognize arbitration agreements and enforce them, and also recognize and enforce arbitral awards. And then the model law then takes the very brief language in the New York Convention and puts it into legislative form that's familiar to each country and provides the same protection that you find for the recognition of arbitration agreements as well as arbitration awards and limits court interference with the process in other ways. So, you know, what are the main features of this international commercial arbitration regime it is the private resolution of business disputes. There is um, a, a theory called separability, um, which means that the arbitration agreement is treated as an agreement separate and apart from the contract in which it's contained, uh, which allows um, Courts to more effectively enforce the agreement to arbitrate without being dragged into the merits of the dispute under the contract or any allegations of um, The the contract itself being void. There's the principle of competence competence, which means that it is for the arbitrator to determine it's his or her own jurisdiction. um, And not the courts and um, then we have that limited interference throughout and in fact courts are um, typically only allowed to step into the arbitral process in order to support it uh, rather than to derail it and then at the end of the day you have these enforcement provisions and In about the mid-1980s, starting about mid-1980s in Canada, BC, I think, was the first jurisdiction to adopt uh, legislation that incorporated the institutional model law. And it has been that way um, since then. Uh, But as I mentioned, there is a slightly different regime for non-international arbitration in most provinces, and that's sort of meant to reflect um, the inherent differences between international and non-international arbitration. In international arbitration, there is no default court of jurisdiction, per se, because the parties come from different uh, countries, they come from different legal backgrounds, potentially, um, and they need a neutral forum, which um, has developed separating apart from any national court. In the domestic context, you don't have those same issues, because the parties are from a shared legal tradition, and they come to, the alternative is a court of competent jurisdiction that is going to be available to them to resolve their dispute. So there are some differences between the domestic legislation and the international legislation in each province. Um, the one that typically gets pointed to is the ability to, a limited right of appeal that often exists in, on the domestic side, but not on the international side in most Canadian jurisdictions. Um, But what we have seen happening is that non-international arbitration has started to grow in popularity um, as an alternative to courts. And there, um, there has been an extension of the use of arbitration in beyond a commercial context. Um, in fact, you, you find a number of statutes that provide for arbitration rather than the resolution of disputes in courts um, in order to sort of strike this balance between access to justice, demands on the justice system, all of these other sort of internal justice system issues. Um, The last number of years, our courts have become um, preoccupied with or had to address arbitration in some of these contexts where it has been expanded. And and the main focus has been really on consumer contracts uh, up to this point um, where you have individual consumers who enter into usually an online agreement that contains an arbitration clause in it Um, And then when a dispute arises, they're bound by the arbitration agreement, and courts in that context have not really had much difficulty with those underlying principles of arbitration applying, even in a consumer context, even in a contract of adhesion, um, finding that this party autonomy ability to contract is fine. That arbitration is a means, an effective means of resolving disputes, and it, you you get what you paid for. Um, when it comes to class actions, which is more the context in which the problems arise, because you have very a, a large number of small value claims that can't effectively be pursued individually, either in court or by arbitration. Um, the courts in that context have said, that's a policy issue for the legislature. That doesn't affect the way we approach arbitration. Um, I, I, we will discuss the case uh, coming up, but I think that um, once you move past the consumer issue, and, and I should say the legislatures have spoken. So the kit court said, you're bound by the arbitration agreement. Um, therefore, that's what, how you must resolve your dispute. Um, and then the legislatures have stepped in and passed legislation that says that certain disputes are not arbitrable, for example, in the, in the consumer context. And then those particular disputes can uh, go to the courts as, um, and take advantage of the class action type procedures that are available there, that are not currently available in arbitration. Um, We now, I think, are reaching the next challenge, which is an employment context or something that in reality is an employment context. And so most of these challenges arise in non-commercial disputes where you don't have two parties of relatively similar I'll say bargaining power, but that's not quite right, I don't think. I think it's sophistication and understanding and the type of relationship. It's not really a truly a business relationship. And this is what is starting to uh, give the courts pause.
0: Right, and so that's where we kind of find ourselves now uh, in the current case. Um, so, Brian, if you don't mind, why don't you give us just an overview of what's going on in Uber Technologies v. Heller um, and, and what's sort of just a really quick overview review of the facts and then what they kind of decided and then we can dive in a little bit deeper into the decisions and the reasons for the decisions.
2: Okay. Um, Yeah, Mr. uh, Mr. Heller uh, uh, provided uh, food delivery services uh, using the Uber app. And uh, when he signed up for the app, uh, he had to accept without any negotiation the standard form terms that appeared uh, on his screen. And uh, those terms included that the contract would be governed by the laws of the Netherlands because that's where Uber was incorporated. The the Uber subsidiary that services Ontario, at least, is incorporated in the Netherlands. Um, uh, He had to accept that any dispute would be resolved first by mediation, and if not successful, then by arbitration in the Netherlands. Under ICC rules, um, we don't know the I'm sorry, details. Sorry,
0: just for just for our listeners, ICC is the International Court, right?
2: International uh, 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 Court in, out of out of Paris. Okay. Um, um, and it is probably the one of the most recognized inst- arbitral institutions for international arbitrations. It's the International Chamber of Commerce, actually, is is what ICC stands for. So we don't know the details, but um, something went wrong. And uh, Mr. Heller then starts a class action proceeding in the courts of Ontario, claiming there have been numerous violations of the Ontario Employment Standards Act that uh, sets out a number of things, minimum wages and all of those sorts of things. Uber, of course, moves to stay the uh, court proceedings in favor of arbitration. Mr. Heller counters that and says the arbitration agreement is invalid because it was unconscionable. And also, you can't contract out of the mandatory provisions of the Employment Standards Act that allows for uh, other means of uh, of resolution. So, the evidence that's put forward is that uh, uh, the upfront filing fee for an ICC arbitration if he wanted to, to, to do this would be fourteen thousand five hundred dollars then he would have his legal fees and presumably at some point travel expenses that was before, maybe before zoom uh, to, uh, to to the Netherlands um, the evidence also showed that he made between four and six hundred dollars a week working Uh, uh, in his uh, food delivery business, which if you work it out, uh, means that even at 52 weeks of the year, a maximum gross income of $31,000. So the first instance judge uh, says, under the competence competence doctrine, which is a law in, uh, in Ontario and Canada, uh, the arbitrator will have to decide uh, issues of unconscionability and whether the Employment Standards Act uh, ousts the, uh, the arbitrator, arbitrator's jurisdiction. The Court of Appeal, in a <laughs> rather vigorous uh, finding, reversed the uh, trial judge and said uh, a whole bunch of things, but for our purposes, the only one that matters is that uh, under Ontario law, the contract is unconscionable. And so then it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in Canada, it's uh, the same as the US. There's nine judges. You have to get leave of the court. They only hear things they wanna hear. And leave was granted and it came in front of the nine. Seven of the judges concurred in a a decision that the appeal should be dismissed on the basis uh, of unconscionability. One judge concurred in the result but on a different basis, public policy, and the last, the ninth judge would have allowed the appeal and let it go to arbitration, but only with conditions. And so that's where we have the the facts uh, of the of the Uber case. Tina, did I did I leave out anything? Did I get it right?
1: It, it sounds right to me, Brian. Um... I should also mention that once they got to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, it became very clear how interesting this case was to the arbitration community because I'm fairly, I believe the number was 17 interveners um, appeared in the case. Each and many of whom were arguing some of these arbitral concepts like competence, competence and the role of the place of arbitration Um, in order to assist the court in uh, arriving at a decision that hopefully would not um, have negative consequences for Canada internationally. And I say that because Canada is is a model law jurisdiction because the nature of the model law, um, those decisions get looked at beyond Canada's borders. So in other places, Uh, They are, they look to Canadian courts, uh, which have been to this point, very supportive of arbitration um, to see how that model law is interpreted and applied. So high stakes case.
0: Yeah, so this one was very important, which is why we're talking about it. So um, Brian, you mentioned, obviously, that there was a sort of a opinion that most of the judges agreed with, and then one concurring opinion and then the, the dissent, but we'll leave the dissent for now. Um, so between the, the joint reasoning and then the concurring opinion, um, I think, Brian, you prefer one over the other, and Tina, you prefer the other. Um, so why don't, why don't you uh, you two jointly explain? or Brian, why don't you start by explaining in detail the reasoning of the, of the majority opinion? And then, Tina, you can, you can favor on the concurring side, and we'll have a bit of a debate here, if you don't mind.
2: Firstly, I think Tina talked about this earlier. You know, This is what I call a fringe case, where commercial arbitration principles of party autonomy, freedom of contract, bump up against consumer arbitration and the perceived need of governments or courts to prohibit predatory practices and protect people from themselves. As you've heard, each province has two arbitration statutes, one for international, that's, that is the model law, for the most part, uh, and another for non-international or domestic arbitration, which is also based on the model law, but as you've heard with provisions for more court supervision. I don't think they needed to do so, but the Supreme Court first spent a lot of time deciding which act would apply. Uh, Again, when you read the language of the acts, I'm not sure it really mattered, but this was the first thing they did. In order to fall within the model law, an arbitration must be both international and commercial. And there's no question that it was international because Uber was incorporated in the Netherlands. But the court found, and in my view properly, that the dispute was not commercial as its essence was a labor and employment dispute. And if you go back and read the report of the secretary general, On the draft text of the model law that came out of uh, the United Nations, you will see that that's specifically referenced. They didn't really intend commercial to include employment disputes. So I think the the court got that right. Um, The next thing is it's important to look at the nature of the dispute between the parties and not necessarily their relationship because they can differ. So you determine the essence of the dispute and you do that by looking at the pleadings because that's all you've got and here the dispute clearly related to whether or not mr. Heller was an employee that's what he's raised regardless of what the contract looks like or whether even if he was incorporated or whatever you look to say what's the dispute hey quite clearly this is a claim by him that he's an employee so that puts us into employment that puts us into the non international act The next point, okay, so now we know which act it is. The next point is who decides the case. And here we have the competence, competence doctrine. And our Supreme Court has been very clear that competence, competence is the law of Canada, which means the court will review, um, sorry, back up, the court will refer it to arbitration and have the arbitrator determine everything, including jurisdiction, subject to some very narrow exceptions. And those exceptions are, uh, if it's if the ju- if jurisdiction is a pure question of law, or can be determined with a cursory review of uncontested facts, then the court has the right to decide the point that's being raised. But if the question of the arbitrator's jurisdiction is arguable then it goes to the arbitrator to decide the question first so that's that was the law the supreme court in this case created another exception to the competence competence rule and that's this where the validity of the arbitration agreement will never be determined by the arbitrator then the court will decide the matter regardless of how complex it is i think when if you get into it you find that the U.S. courts would probably do the same thing. But to quote from our Supreme Court, the only question they had in front of them is whether there is a real prospect on the facts that the arbitrator may never decide the merits of the jurisdictional challenge. And the court found that here, in the circumstances, the facts you've heard, Mr. Heller was never going to be able to go to arbitration in the, in the Netherlands.
0: Right, because it was just too expensive. He was never gonna be able yeah. to get there practically, yeah.
2: And so one of, so the, the court has created an, an, an exception to the competence competence rule, and that is, look, it's gotta be real. <laughs> if, it's, if it's illusory, if there is no ability to go and get the point decided, uh, the court will decide the matter. So the court said all right now we've got it now what do we do with it and they decided that the appropriate way to analyze the case was on the under the doctrine of unconscionability and this followed a previous decision of the supreme court and i'm going to quote where they said arguments over any potential unfairness resulting from the enforcement of arbitration clauses contained in standard form contracts are better dealt with directly through the doctrine of unconscionability. That's the Tellus and Wellman case. Canadian doctrine of unconscionability has two elements, an inequality of bargaining power stemming from some weakness or vulnerability affecting the claimant, and resulting in an improvident transaction, in a nutshell. So they found that the arbitration agreement unconscionable under Ontario law because neither side had led any evidence as to what Netherlands law was. If our act says an action in court should be stayed unless the arbitration agreement is invalid, there's a good argument that says any court is gonna determine that's invalidity in accordance with its own local law and not the law of the arbitration agreement, but that's a separate thing. Here, it didn't matter because under our our law, if you don't lead evidence as to what a foreign law is, it's presumed to be the same as, as your own. So at the end of the day, The majority simply found the the arbitration agreement was unconscionable and therefore the court action could proceed. It did not deal with, it didn't even talk about the other stuff the Court of Appeal had uh, in Ontario had raised, in particular how the Employment Standards Act mandatory provisions did or did not affect arbitration. I guess they felt, and they could have at least said, having decided the first point, they don't need to decide the second. Uh, it would have been nice, but that they didn't do it. That's that's what the majority, uh, in in my understanding, did.
0: Okay, that's that was great, very very thorough. So, um, Tina, you you've said that you pre- prefer maybe a little bit the concurring opinion by Justice Brown. Um, so, why don't you give us an overview of that and and why you think that one's important?
1: Yeah, I, I think I mean for anybody who who was a law nerd like me and watched. Um, the submissions being made to the Supreme Court of Canada and the reaction of the judges off the bench. um, You probably weren't surprised to read the reasons afterwards. Um, This was a real issue for the justices. They did not like the idea um, that you had this um, poor claimant who would never have his day in court. But the concurring decision, rather than taking an unconscionability approach to the analysis of the arbitration agreement and whether it was valid, instead decided that contractual stipulations that foreclose access to legally determined dispute resolution are unenforceable. Because they undermine the rule of law and they do that by denying access to justice. Justice Brown said that is contrary to public policy. And the reason I like that approach better is for a couple of related reasons. Uh, you know, we've already said that the, the majority of the court said that this was not an international commercial dispute. Um, but Uh, Brian has raised the point that the language in the two acts are very similar and I think what we said earlier explains why the courts might have a different approach depending whether you're under one act versus the other notwithstanding the similar language. Um, I think and I'm curious if Brian agrees um, that it's very likely that um, had this been a commercial case the court would have never approached it in this way. If it was not an issue of employment, if it was some sort of business deal in actual fact, and the the allegations were all related to the contract, um, that you wouldn't have ended up here. Um, And and I think Justice Brown says as much um, in his concurring reasons, that it would be a very rare set of circumstances where you would ever have a commercial dispute where where these factors would come into play, Um, because in those circumstances the the party autonomy principle sort of gets some primary considerations. But um, the reason I like the public policy approach is because that public policy language is an exception that already exists from the time of the New York Convention and it has been imported into the model law. And the idea of public policy is one that is understood across legal traditions. There's a difference in terms of what the content of public policy is and whether you're looking at it from an international side, international public policy or domestic public policy. So there's all these lovely debates that we can get into as to that. But the idea of public policy is one that can be universally applied, I think, in a way that an unconscionability doctrine may not be similarly uniform. And so I like the idea of applying a concept that already exists in arbitration law in a way that will make sense to people outside of Canada as well as within Canada. And it also focuses the court on the arbitration agreement itself rather than the circumstances of the particular parties. So I think in theory, at least, it can lend itself to a less fact-intensive um, approach When if and then the issue is raised again um, in court. Unlike unconscionability, which feels like it's a doctrine that's developing, I think Justice Brown even says it will create uncertainty um, by using it and affect the predictability. And that predictability is really one of the main advantages of international arbitration we have this model law the same language is used around the world courts generally interpret it uniformly parties can rely on it they know how to structure their their contracts and they can get on with their business Um, but all of that is based on the fundamental premise that that alternative form of dispute resolution is neutral and fair and not con to public policy. So I, I, that, that has always been there as a fundamental underpinning. And if that is the basis on which they decide to take something out of arbitration and give it to the courts, I have less of a problem with that. That
0: makes sense. Any rebuttal from you, Brian? Or?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very uncomfortable when judges start talking about public policy. Uh, there's a saying that it's, a, it's an unruly horse. I've got a couple of other problems with, with, with Brown's uh, uh, opinion. The first one is procedural. This was not argued. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada is not bound <laughs> by the submissions of the parties. But in my experience, if they want to go off on a tangent, uh, they will tell you. Um, a, a, a very fast war story. I get, I get on my hind legs in the Supreme Court of Canada and I say to the, the, to the, to the bench, I say, look, uh, I'm going to go right to the main issue here because the question of what the appropriate test is, in all the courts below, the parties have agreed it's this test and the courts have agreed with the parties that, yes, that's the test. And the chief looks down and says, we haven't agreed we want you to file supplementary briefs on whether or not that's the right test so they raised it for the first time but they gave us the opportunity to then file material on the point and we did and in the end they said no no, that was the right test thank you Uh, (laughs) uh, But my first problem with brown is that that he didn't give the parties the chance to make submissions. And who knows that might've affected the way he did his decision. It might've affected the majority's opinion as well. So that's the, the first thing that I've, i I really don't like. I agree with him that perhaps the Supreme court made a hash of the doctrine of unconscionability because they reopened the whole area and now it's going to be a real mess, but who cares? Um, that's really not, not the point. Um, The second thing he focuses on, and maybe he didn't intend to do this, and again, this is one of the things that maybe would have been brought out by one of the parties, he says a dispute has to be resolved in accordance with law, Mm -hmm. whether it's the arbitrator or the court. Well, there goes uh, amiable composition. The amiable compositor, et acuo et bono, hey, that's against public policy. It's not law. Um, I don't know whether he meant to be that strict. Probably not, but again, that's a problem. But the, the third one is this lack of access to justice. He says, makes it contrary to public policy. So what happens if the parties sign an agreement that has an arbitration clause? Everything goes swimmingly. Five years later, the one of the parties is now a little bit in financial difficulty and wants to bring a hundred million dollar dispute to the ICC and just can't afford anything like the cost. At the time the dispute arises, does public policy then kick in and say, oh, well, if you can't go to arbitration, don't worry about it, you can still come to court. Boy, that just drives a big truck through it. I don't know that he intended that, but that's my concern. Public policy bothers me, <laughs>
0: and so unconscionability then is usually um, gauged at the time of contracting versus at the time of dispute, right? So that's the, the difference you're making, which is very interesting.
2: The court, the Supreme Court majority said specifically that at the time of the formation of the contract, what was one party under a disability, et cetera, et cetera expect the, the Supreme Court to come back to this because I, I think Brown had a lot of good points he he really went after the majority on their making a hash of the test of unconscionability um, but insofar as protecting the arbitration agreement, I like the way in which the majority uh, majority dealt with it. Um, just the last point the whole issue of whether it was commercial or employment only went only went to the question of which act applied in the court of appeal they said it wouldn't matter they'd reach the same result on unconscionability uh it would have been nice if maybe this court had just left it the same way uh but there we are tina yeah what do you i mean what do you think I,
1: i i don't know that 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 the opening up um the analysis of the clause at a later time was actually what Justice Brown intended to do. Um, I agree with you that 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 definitely is one way that you can read um, his reasons and his approach. Um, But I think the nut that he's getting at is courts will not enforce arbitration agreements that are designed to avoid the resolution of disputes. Right because those are contrary to public policy because when it's all well and good to give um, uh, delegate to the power, the power of party autonomy to parties to make whatever contract they want to be the law as between them and they can choose which law will then apply to that agreement um, but it doesn't go so far as to run unchecked so that somebody someday can't have a look at that and resolve the disputes that arise under it.
2: And, and here it also comes back to the problem we've got that this whole case is looked at through the lens of if not a consumer, and employee. I mean, you can take a case in which the arbitration clause says any claim under a hundred million dollars will not be arbitrated or litigated. And in exchange for that, they got fifteen percentage points off the price of something else on another part of the contract. That's just fine. So it's it's all within this context of the, the employee and how you protect people. Um, but again, the language doesn't say that.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Right. So we'll be we'll be back on this issue. It sounds like perhaps with it with a slightly different case and a slightly different. Uh, different situation, we're gonna be revisiting these things. Um, very quickly, if you guys wanna say anything on the dissent, is there anything worth talking about in the dissent? Um, I don't think anybody likes the dissent, but just so sort of to give it its, its moment.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the, dis- the dissent makes a lot of sense if this was a commercial case. Um, but I think the problem in my view with the dissent is that if you adhere too rigidly to those principles of things like competence competence you run the risk of giving up the whole of commercial arbitration and what's good about it i think there has to be a way to separate out these sort of fringe cases that were not what arbitration was designed for and certainly not what that international network of treaties and model laws was focused on. And when you move, start to move beyond those commercial relationships and apply it in different contexts, and you have different notions of public policy that apply to those kinds of relationships, like employment relationships and consumer relationships and individuals, um, you start to see a backlash. And you've seen it south of the border where there is a movement against all arbitration Um, There's a sense in some quarters that arbitration is bad, it's secretive, um, it has all of these issues related to it, which of course only arise in certain contexts, and I would argue only when it's been stretched um, to these areas that it's not well-suited for, where there is a public interest in what happens in those disputes. Um, So I, I prefer the division and the recognition that um, international arbitration, those protections are are reserved for commercial cases uh, where they make sense and they operate well and they allow businesses to um, resolve their disputes efficiently and enforce their rewards and get on with things. Um, That's not necessarily the case for other types of cases and they they should be treated differently. Makes sense.
0: Makes Uh, sense.
2: I think to um, the, uh, and I agree with everything that Tina uh, has said, I'm concerned as well because the dissent was not really so strong Uh, because when you read what she finally decides, and I'm going to quote it, I would allow the appeal and grant Uber's motion for a stay of proceedings on the condition that Uber advances the funds needed to initiate the the ICC arbitration. So uh, where'd that come from? That's not in the arbitration agreement. I think uh, uh, Justice Cote recognizes that, hey, there is a problem here, but can't bring herself to say, you know, it's either unconscionable or against public policy. I don't even know where the jurisdiction comes from to say, you know what, we're going to rewrite the arbitration agreement. Uh, uh, so it's, it's tainted, if you, if you will. And, and she may have been influenced by what I will call the arbitral zealots that appeared <laughs> uh, in, the, uh, in, in the case. Um, you can push it too far. Uh, it's only a contract. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, great. Well, that's been very thorough, and I think um, anyone listening has a great understanding of what happened in the case and the various reasons that were presented. Just the last question for you guys: Do you foresee this changing how um, companies approach alternative dispute resolution clauses in their contracts going forward? What impact do you think this is going to have, both in Canada, maybe abroad? Um, so where, where do you think that this is going to affect the the real world, so to speak?
1: Uh, I, I don't think it's going to affect. Um, our usual run-of-the-mill commercial relationships at all. I do think it will cause um, sort of these companies, the corporate entities that are operating more in this consumer and employment space to think about how they structure their dispute resolution clauses so that they're going to survive challenge. Um, because continuing to get it wrong and ending up before the courts is not really good for business on their side either. Um, But I I think they have some very valid interests that they're trying to protect in in the name of making their business efficient. Um, You know, for just one example of that, uh, the court for some reason really had trouble with the submission that um, you know these standard form agreements provided for Dutch law because Uber Technologies is a Dutch incorporated entity and it operates around the world. And so in order for it to have some consistency in its agreements, which are on their face software licensing agreements and not employment contracts, it makes good business sense to have the same law apply to those agreements, regardless of where their drivers are located. Um but that was seen as something that was really nefarious uh, by the court because that they looked at that and thought that that was an attempt to evade um, the employment standards um, in the place in, in Ontario. So I, I think that companies need to th- realize that that is how courts look at these things and to structure, their agreements to take that into account and you should I should probably say too like this was not if you looked at all of the evidence Uber was not trying to avoid the resolution of disputes with its drivers like it had numerous um, dispute resolution systems in-house to deal with things on the front lines before they got out of control and reached the point where you would have to go to mediation and or arbitration but you know the court was very much focused on this well what if you have a dispute that you can't resolve that way and you know in this case the way that was formulated was i'm an employee so so that is a different lens to look through but uh, you know i think realistically these companies have to look at what they're doing and understand how the courts are going to react to what they're doing, and find a way that meets their own business needs to meet the needs of the public policy at the places that they're operating in.
2: Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd agree um, with with uh, with with all of that, except I may be more of a uh, of a pessimist. I'm not sure that this clause wasn't drafted to be a limitation of liability clause, uh, and I think the extent to which companies will take this case and realize maybe they shouldn't be playing around with an arbitration clause as a means of getting out of ugly disputes Uh, that's good because as i said earlier you know it's the it's the uh, it's the tough case that makes bad law consumer stuff employment stuff you know you really don't want judges making broad statements within that context that then can be used by someone in a real commercial case to say, aha, look what I've got here. So I, I hope it, I'm not, I, have, I have no real belief that it will, but I would hope that it would cause companies to uh, think twice before using these clauses uh, as a means of getting out of uh, some responsibility to one way or another settle the dispute, whether by court or by arbitration.
0: Well, thank you both so much for your perspectives and for your time this evening speaking about this case. I've I've had a lot of fun. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you so much for joining me.
2: You're welcome. Good fun.
0: Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep in touch with us or have an idea for a topic of a future episode, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Sidebar Canada or follow our Facebook page at Sidebar Canada Podcast. Sidebar Canada aims to provide useful and relevant commentary on developing legal issues, but is by no means a definitive source of information on the law or any other subject matter presented. Nothing discussed in this podcast constitutes legal advice or gives rise to a solicitor-client relationship. Whilst we endeavor to ensure the information presented is correct, no warranty, express, or implied is made as to the accuracy of the podcast content, and we do not accept liability for error or omission. Finally, the views expressed of the hosts and the guest speakers are their own and do not reflect on their employer or any other affiliated third
1: parties.